Hi, everyone. This is Lindsay, one of the hosts of Yield Crime. Just wanted to give you a heads up that since you were listening to an earlier episode of Yield Crime, you may notice that the audio quality isn't the best. It does get better, I promise. If you are willing to stick with it, great. If you'd rather start with better quality audio, I would suggest skipping ahead to episode 19 when we purchased newer, better audio equipment. And on that note, thank you for listening and on with the show. Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my co-host and sister, Maddie Single. Hello! <laughs> How goes? I just always want to do that every time you're like, and here's my co-host and sister. I'm like, it's like, that's probably going to be awful to people who are wearing headphones. I'm so sorry, but I just, it's like a nervous tick. I have to do it. I have to sound like I'm saying hello to a baby. I'm doing all right. I lit all of my crystal candles. Nice. So I am one step closer to getting said crystals at the bottom of the candles. You're one step closer to achieving enlightenment. (laughs) Once I unlock all candles and their crystals, um, I think I'll be able to level up. I was going to say, is it kind of like Pokemon where you have to collect them all? And then once you combine all the crystals, then you can like... Then I can go back out into the world and color my hair, yeah. So today's topic, (laughs) I need to actually give a disclaimer because this is going to be an extremely not safe for work episode based on the sexual nature of the content we will be discussing today. Okay. I was like, that could go any. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... In the previous episodes, they've been pretty tame. We haven't used a whole lot of super foul language, so you could probably get away with listening to it without your headphones on. But this one, you are definitely going to want to have your headphones on if you're going to be listening to it at work or anywhere around people who may be sensitive to that kind of stuff. That being said, today we are going to be learning about the erotic art of Pompeii. Okay. Because have you heard this little thing called uh, penises? I have. Go on. They decorate the entire city of Pompeii. And we're going to discuss why and the history of erotic Rome. So there's just a bunch of penises in Pompeii? There are so many penises in Pompeii. Right. It's a very phallic city. Yeah. So strap yourself in. So gird your loins and we are going to get started. I'm ready. All right. Information for this episode was pulled from a 2014 Ancient Origins article, a 2014 Hole in the Donut article by Barbara Weibel, a 2017 The Conversation article by Marguerite Johnson, a 2018 All That's Interesting article by Andrew Milne, and also uh, an article on Atlas Obscura and Wikipedia. 
And a 12-year-old boy named Derek in the cul-de-sac down the street. <laughs> Penis. And I will have links to all of these articles, should you decide to go down the rabbit hole with me, uh, in the show notes. Clear your browser history. Yeah, make sure you uh, look at this in incognito mode. So the ancient city of Pompeii is a literal time capsule and window into what life was like in ancient Rome. So when you're navigating the streets of Pompeii, you will see phallic symbols everywhere. On the walls, on the street, even hanging from doorways. So a lot of people believe that these penises are an early form of advertising that act as arrows that point the way to one of the city's many brothels. Okay. I mean, so so is the tip of the penis the arrow or... Yep, the tip of the penis is the arrow, and the balls are like the wings of the arrow. Okay, not the balls, because, I mean, the balls... The wings. Okay, so they're still pointing in the same direction. Yep. The darn thing's got wings. (laughs) They're called testicles. Okay. So, however, that explanation as the penis is pointing the way towards the brothels is up for debate amongst historians, because some scholars believe that they were placed around the city as a form of talisman against the evil eye or a symbol of good luck. I mean, could go either way. And to be clear, is that where one eye really came from? Maybe. Warding off the evil eye? Yeah. With your other eye. And to be clear, all of these um, phallic recreations are fully erect. There's There's no sad... Penis mm. in this story. No roundabout. So we're going to like rewind a little bit and talk about ancient Pompeii and um, a little bit more about the sex trade and why sex in general was such a big part of their culture. It is the oldest profession. It is. So in 40 AD, Emperor Caligula imposed a tax on prostitution which basically made sex a profitable endeavor for the government. Smart. He also installed a brothel in the palace. Okay. You know, keep keep shit real. Yeah. Regulating, one might say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And his successor, Nero, was known to carry on the tradition by hosting orgies for the aristocracy at the palace. Did they get a discount? I would hope so. Like, hey, come to my sex party. You only have to pay half price. Buy one, get one. <laughs> you don't have to note it on your taxes. Right. <laughs> it a, you get off and write it off. That was the slogan. Yeah. So surrounding city states such as Pompeii and Herculaneum, mm-hmm. they mimic the actions of the capital by also actively engaging in the more carnal pursuits. And at the time, sex work was not illegal, but adultery was outlawed. So it was actually more socially acceptable to pay for sex than to cheat on your wife or your husband. So were people just not married as often? People were still married, but it was considered more socially acceptable to pay somebody for sex than to be caught having unmarried. So as long as you paid for it, it wasn't sexual relations with somebody else. Yeah. If you paid for it, it was kosher. Got it. Yeah. Well, so at its height, Pompeii boasted a population of about 11,000, which is pretty decent. It was also home to 41 brothels 
as well as scores of businesses that actively participated in the sex trade, like public baths, theaters, tabernas, and private sex clubs, all of which were sort of like frozen in time when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. That'd be awkward. Yeah. Dying in the bath. So although Herculaneum and Pompeii were first unearthed in the 16th century, they weren't properly excavated until the 18th century. And we'll go more into that later on. Too many fainting people from all of the sex? Yeah. People in the 16th century were a little prudish and (sighs) got a bit of the vapors. Got a bit of the vapors whenever they started to uh, cease. God, it's another penis. So by looking at these things that they found in their excavations, they were able to get a better idea of the activities of the time. Because up until that point, historians and scholars viewed the Romans as like a more subdued and like, um, I don't want to say sterile, but a more like virtuous society. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how we were taught mostly. Like in school, yeah. they, they pretty they pretty much whitewashed a lot of this until like the movies in the 60s. Yeah. Brown chicken, brown cow. So basically after Nero, when a couple more of the um, emperors came through after 79 AD, I cannot remember the name of the emperor that was put into place, but he was a little bit more subdued as far as, you know, the cardinal pleasures and stuff was not as much. So that's when it started kind of dialing back. And that's when they started being like, you know, we really shouldn't be indulging in this as much. Like we're a more enlightened culture. We we should be focusing more on our intellect and, you know, all the things that we're bringing to culture and society, not just, you know, that we like to talk all the time. So, yeah. So this was like a very eye-opening experience for historians to like find this and be like, oh my God. Besides the whole fact that there were like penises everywhere. Yeah, I bet. Um, so once they started excavating Pompeii, numerous brothels were being found and many were denoted as such because of their stone beds and the erotic frescoes and graffiti that they had inside. Ooh, they still had art. Yeah, they still had art. So one of the most famous brothels in Pompeii was known as Lupinaire, which is Latin for the wolf's den. Clever. It was built just a few years before the tragedy of 79 AD. And it was one of the only buildings crafted with the express purpose of being a brothel. Like it was very obvious at this building. So it was very like almost modern then if it was only a couple years old yeah it was exclusive it would have been like the new hip yeah because most other brothels in the city were like a couple rooms here and there that were like hidden and like underneath almost like it's bars or something like that like it was just Mm -hmm. like a bedroom here and there and this was like an entire structure that was built specifically for this purpose So what we think of as brothels today. Yeah. So it was a two-story building that had 10 rooms and a latrine under the stairs. And each room had a stone bed that would have been covered by a mattress. And that's where the ladies would entertain their clients. So a unique feature of this brothel, obviously, was the erotic wall art that decorated the walls. Mm -hmm. And it depicted people in 
various sexual positions. And historians believe that they were used almost like sandwich boards to kind of be like, oh yeah, which which would you like to to do? Would you like to? I mean, that's good marketing. Yep. Would you like to do it wolf style? Would you like to do it face to face? So, and they think that they would have done that because chances are a lot of the Romans who were not yet married would have gone to brothels to gain experience prior to their wedding night. So they believe that they had these murals up for the express purpose of being like... Of education almost. Okay. Like you obviously... Yeah. Like you have no idea what you're supposed to do with your penis besides stick it somewhere. Here are some things. Here are some ways you can stick it to me. Like take which one you want to try. Here's what you might like more. Here's what she might like more. Here's what he might like more. Yeah. So, yeah. So despite these idealized depictions of what erotic Rome was like, historians believe the exact opposite to be true. Um, The lives for the women that lived and worked at Lupinaire were most likely really horrible. Oh, yeah. Uh, The rooms were cramped and windowless, and they only had a curtain that separated them from the anteroom. Yeah. No, that that's kind of what I think we're used to hearing is, you know, I I almost feel like the the version of like, oh, this is more of like, you know, education and fostering comfort is very much, you know, a more upper class depiction of probably these women who were doing this just to survive. Mm-hmm. Like who knows how many of those stone beds really had a good mattress on it? Yeah. And one latrine? Yeah. Yeah. Probably not great. Yeah. So it's also believed that a lot of the women who worked at the brothels were sex slaves that were brought in from the Orient or Greece. And so obviously with no other skills at their disposal, they would have been forced to work at the brothels with no hope of finding a different profession. Or maybe they were just sold. Yeah. And forced to stay there too. Yep. It's entirely possible. Um, so clients had vastly different experiences at Lupinaire. Archaeologists found over 100 graffitis and graffitied inscriptions at that brothel in particular from common Romans of the day, such as, quote, I screwed a lot of girls here. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. And some of the graffiti left clues to what the quote-unquote price of admission would have been. Okay. Any guesses? It's really insulting. Well, I was just going to say, if there's like 41, it would be like, this is a terrible analogy, it would be like McDonald's any size soft drink for a dollar. So I would assume it would be something similar to where like... Couple bucks. You are very, you are very close. You could uh, gain an audience with one of the women at Lupinaire for the price, the low, low price of two loaves of bread and a half liter of wine. Feed them. Paid to the brothel owner. Wow. Because uh, a lot of the Romans who lived in the city probably didn't have a lot of money. Nope. If you could feed the women. But if you could feed the women, sure, why not? You can stick it to me. Just give me some bread. So that being said, the women who worked at the um, brothels actually made much more money than a common unskilled laborer. 
because not everything was two loaves of bread and wine, depending on the services you received. Uh, you would have to cough up actual coin for that. And part of why they made a lot of money was obviously because of the demands that were being placed on their bodies and their health. Right. If you're sick and old, no one's going to want to purchase your time. So pregnant. I mean, like that's probably why the population got grew so much. Yeah. 41 brothels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the graffiti was also helpful in providing graphic descriptions of what services exactly were available for purchase at Lufanair. And the five services included intercourse, cunnilingus, mm-hmm. fellatio, mm-hmm. active anal sex, and passive anal sex. Oh, okay. Yep. So you could either be a pitcher, catcher. So it's interesting that they, um, had a different price. Well, we kind of go into that because the sex trade in Pompeii wasn't exclusive to females. Well, yeah. There were also male sex workers and it was also very common um, and culturally allowed to fornicate with other men as long as there was no penetrative sex. And I'll kind of go into that more later on. Okay. So for the women that worked in this industry, obviously life would not have been easy. Uh, they would have hung out in places like archways or graveyards or public baths to find customers. Graveyards. I would hate to be that one. Yeah. Hey, Sally, you get the graveyard shift. Literally. That's why it has that name. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That has to be why it has that name. Because it's literally the shittiest place you could go (laughs) for work. Putting it all together. Two plus two equals math. (laughs) So as horrible as it sounds to us today, the sex trade in brothels actually played a vital role in the culture of Roman cities like Pompeii. Well, honestly, that probably would have been one of the more safer jobs for women, even though it's also very much not safe, but yeah, probably one of the best jobs you could get for the time being. So part of the reason it was so profitable is because at that time, marriages were often arranged. And sex and marriage was viewed as just a means to produce a male heir. Okay. So as a courtesy to their wives, I use that term loosely. Right. Um, The men decided it was a courtesy, correct? Yep. The men would pay other women for pleasurable sex instead of asking their wives to perform the more lustful, quote unquote, demeaning duties outside of what was expected of them in order to produce children. Got it. So women weren't allowed the pleasure sex unless they were a sex worker. Correct. That sucks. Yeah. The wife's duty was to produce heirs. And so you would be getting the most vanilla of sex for the sole purpose of having children. Anything that would have been deemed super fun. Yeah, I was just going to say fun. <laughs> the guy the guy would have gone outside the household to take care of it. Oh. So. Were women going to brothels before marriage? Do you know? Like, even if it was like a woman of higher standing, maybe with more money? No. Women of higher standing would not. Like the brothels that were in the cities, anyone that was of more noble birth, they would you would not see them at like the brothels in the cities. Okay. They would have paid people to come to them. I was just going to say either people come to them or they would probably have their own slaves maybe too. 
they would use their own slaves yeah. or they, if they were noble enough, they would have taken part at like the palace, okay. set up like the palace. Um, I don't believe women would have done that unless they were already married. Like if they were a widow. Okay. But cause I believe as an ignorant person, but based off what I have read, I believe it to be like, you had to be quote unquote pure upon marriage. Okay. And if you, if you weren't, then you were viewed a certain way that was unfavorable and undesirable. So, cool. so yeah. yeah never changed. <laughs> yeah. That has stayed very consistent. So now we're going to go into the history of penile art and the discovery of Pompeii. So in 1752, the ruins of Herculaneum and Pompeii were discovered quite by accident by King Charles III of Bourbon's royal archaeologist, Carl Weather. It's a very normal, modern sounding name for somebody in the 1700s. Carl. Yeah, Carl Weber. But it's with a K. Hey, King Charles, I found this on accident. It's got a bunch of penises in it. <laughs> so the king and his family, including his Prussian wife, Queen Maria Amalia, were hunting nearby when they were made aware of the discovery. So the king and his family settled in for a luxurious picnic as prison laborers began the task of bringing some of the artifacts topside. And the first piece that they unearthed quickly horrified the king. Eh, was it the king or was it the queen? No, it horrified the king. And at this point, I am going to share with you what that picture is. And I want you to describe for everybody what it is. So excited. I love it because Zoom automatically makes it like full screen. Okay, that is... What what type of mythical creature is that? Is the god Pan? Okay, so the god Pan is having um, anal sex with a goat. He's actually having vaginal sex with a she goat. Oh, I thought those were I thought those were balls, but that's the tail, isn't it? That's the tail. Yep, and you can see her little teats by the. Oh, you can. Okay, it was hidden under her her hoof. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, he's half goat, so. <laughs> so that was literally the first piece of art that was brought up from this, like, dig. And I can only imagine the look on the king's face. And he was just like, <laughs> I am really mesmerized by, like, are those his balls that kind of look like, they just look like a vulva? Yeah. It's like really long. Yep. That's his ball sack. Wow. It looks like a. Um, like a like a cacao plant. I was just gonna say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like plant. dangling. Maybe that's their inspiration. They're like, what would? You or like a really stretched out peach. A really sad, semi deflated peach. A really overripe peach. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna stop. That's interesting, though. I mean, like the detail is really intense, but I do, I feel for this she goat because he's taking her basically on the ground, you know, like a rock. And you know, that rock looks really uncomfortable. Like, yeah, she's literally propped up against it, the rock. It's hitting her back in a way that like all people who have like um, lumbar issues would be like, Dude, like you 
can't make out with me right now. Like her, her hoof, like her left hoof is like pushing his face away from her. Like, dude, like change it up. This sucks. That's hilarious that they were having like a luxurious picnic and they were like penis. Yeah. And not just penis, like it was half man. Yeah. Just not his God railing a she goat. But yeah, so that was literally the first thing that was brought up from the stick. And the king quickly ushered his family away and he ordered that the piece be locked in a cabinet in the Herculaneum Academy in Naples. Uh, and King Charles, uh, his wish to keep the vulgar pieces that they found under lock and key was pretty much doomed from the start. Well, duh. Because people heard about it and they were like, yeah. I want to see what this looks like. Absolutely. So forgers soon made copies of like these sexually explicit frescoes that they found under there. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as distributed illustrated copies of the sculpture of Pan and the Shigo. This is amazing. So it quickly became like this like guerrilla marketing campaign of like this erotic art that they It basically became a meme. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Instead of t-shirts and <laughs> And things to text to your friends. There were statues you could put in your house. Yep. <laughs> Posters on your wall. And drawings that you could hang yeah. on your wall. So during the Bourbon reign, that was the family, uh, hundreds of pieces of this erotic art emerged. And people couldn't get enough of them. Phallic reliefs started appearing on bakeries and above ovens, while others were carved into walls and on the streets. Huge erect penises would protrude from the exteriors of people's houses. Hilarious. All kind of just generally protesting the king. Yep. Essentially. And as fast as they appeared, King Charles would just lock them away. And then in 1758, his successor, King Ferdinand of Naples, began allowing special viewings of the erotic Pompeii collection. Well, that makes sense. It's kind of like... You know, if if you tell people they can't do something, they're going to go crazy. Like, look what happened with Prohibition. Yeah. You know, like, um, even with, like, marijuana, like, once they regulated it in Colorado, their school, it like, they give, like, millions of dollars to their schools now. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's fine. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You did the right thing. Yeah. So the last of the collection was transferred to what is now the Naples National Archaeological Museum by 1819, where it was put on public display. But in 1827, King Francis I bowed to pressure from the church because they they always got to fuck shit up. And he once again had the exhibits locked away. And what they dubbed the secret cabinet. That was the room where they locked it away. I'd like to think it was like an actual cabinet, like a, like an art school cabinet. It's like not that secure. Yeah. It's wooden. Yeah. Kind of dusty. Yeah. So only people of, quote, mature age and respected morals were allowed to view these pieces. So the church? I would hope not. So this horde of erotic art basically stayed in storage off and on for the next 173 years. Yeah, that makes sense. Like in fashion, out of fashion. Out of fashion, yeah. yeah. So it appeared briefly in 1848 
And then again in 1860, after Garibaldi defeated the Bourbons. It is now, it's only because I read this, as of 2000, they reopened the exhibit. So you could go to Naples now and see this exhibit. Wow, you couldn't see it in the 90s? You couldn't see it in the 90s, only in the 2000s. In the year 2000. In the year 2000. Penis. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, so even in like the 80s and stuff, you couldn't see it? Dang. Okay. So now we're going to come to the section that I call, So What's the Deal with the Penises? Lay it on me. All right. Views of the male figure in ancient Rome were vastly different from what they are today. In Roman times, the naked male form was something to be admired and revered, and same-sex attraction was common and accepted. Yeah, as it should be. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Adult freeborn males were allowed to have relations with their slaves, but only if the masters were the penetrators. That goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Yep. I mean, now it's kind of going downhill a little bit. Yeah. So to be penetrated as a freeborn male would mean to give up your title and privileges. It's a big deal. Yeah. So uh, obviously rape and anal penetration were tools to be used for dominance, which is basically kind of the same as how things are today. Yeah. Um, and not only would you have your title and privileges revoked, but the penalty for being penetrated as a freeborn male would also mean execution. They started out so well. And okay. So it was a really, it was a really big deal to people. Wow. The image of the penis was so powerful that it would often adorn the armor of generals as they went into battle. Uh, it was thought that the energy of the penis would invoke the protection of Fascinus, which is the god of male power and virility. Okay. So amulets called Fascinum were quite popular among soldiers as they marched off to battle. And this is my favorite. As well as with children to ward off sickness. Oh. So like little Timmy could just be wearing a little wiener on his, around his neck so he doesn't get a cold. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like that. No. <laughs> I just can't picture myself having a penis around my neck. Sorry. Here, Justin. Here's your first phallic yep. amulet. Hope you don't get the chicken pox. Yep. Hope you don't get scabies. Oh my gosh. What if they had like pox parties and everybody would get a, an amulet at the end of it? You had to earn your amulet by going to a Go chicken to a, pox party. Going to a pox party. <laughs> You're infected, but don't worry, you'll be saved. The penis will set you free. Willie's still reacting to Aww, your voice. I love you so much, Willie. You're my good boy. I feel really bad that I'm talking about penises in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> so although historians can't really agree exactly on what the penises around town mean, whether they're like an advertisement for brothels or if it's just general directions or a good luck charm against the forces of evil. Yeah. Or, you know, pointing to where you could get amulets. Maybe it was like to doctors. Maybe, maybe advertise the Fastenham store. That was their, uh, Mm -hmm. their sign 
Just a giant erect penis outside the building. There's another penis to join the army. Mm-hmm. Get your fastenums here. Uh, so regardless, uh, one thing is clear to me. The Romans really liked their pleasure. And this was... Yeah, well, we always knew that. And this was never more apparent than in Pompeii. The Pompeii was like the party school. That was like the party palace. The party port city. Pompeii. Nice. I mean, I would go there. Yeah, for real. Nice tagline until you actually get there and you're like, oh, <laughs> I forgot my bread. <laughs> oh, I only have one loaf. Oh, shoot. Sorry, that only gets you a cunnilingus. So, yeah, that's the story of the erotic art and uh, sex trade situation in Pompeii. Nice. That's really interesting. I can't believe you couldn't look at that goat statue in the 90s, man. Yeah, it was still under lock and key. Dang. Although I think I did read somewhere that part of why it wasn't opened until the early 2000s is because they were restoring everything. Yeah, but I mean... I'm not Italian, so what do I know? Yeah, we aren't. It's one of the few things we're not. Right? So I figured since a lot of this story had to do with art and sculptures and things like that, Mm-hmm. We could talk about what are some of your uh, favorite uh, art, artsy type things. Artsy type things. Oh, no. Would you like me to go first so you can think about it? Yeah. I really like going to Franconia by me in Taylor's Falls. What is Franconia? Franconia is this big sculpture park. And garden. Where artists from kind of all over the place will come and do art installations. And uh, they've recently added on. So they have a building where you can actually do like welding and stuff like that in this building, like on site. Um, And they offer some workshops and stuff. I haven't attended any of that stuff, but. um, It's nice to know you can. mm -hmm. You know, once this is all done. Yeah. And they're open all the time. Like you don't have to pay anything to go. It's free to go. Obviously, if you want to give a donation, they're more than happy to accept the donation. But yeah, like it's just this giant field full of sculptures and stuff. You can bring your dogs, you can have a picnic. Like it's just a fun place to go and walk around. And it is. Um, and it's nice. It's a nice place to like Taylor's Falls has a bunch of like trails and stuff. It's a really pretty park. Um, that's literally like not even a mile away. So it's a nice way to like begin your trip to Taylor's Falls or end your trip to Taylor's Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually end our trip. So we do, we get all the huffing and puffing hiking out of the way. And then we just kind of wander and there's like one of the installations had like swings and stuff. And mm-hmm. I like the dog shaped house. Have you been inside the dog shaped house? I think, I don't think it was there when I went. Yeah, it's just like this tall house. It's very like narrow, but it looks like a dog. It's painted like a Dalmatian. It's very cute. Oh, cool. You can walk inside and it's got like an upstairs and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just cute. I really like going to the MIA. Um, what is that? The Minneapolis Institute of Art. Uh, it's pretty close to where I live and uh, I don't know. I just... I like that it's free for the most part, unless you go to one of their like sponsored exhibits or whatever. Yeah. Unless you go to, I went to the Guillermo del Toro exhibit 
there. I did too. Which was really cool. That was actually one of Willie's first um, big adventures, like big outings with me. And he did pretty well. Um, at the time, he he got anxious and we and we did leave eventually. Um, but he would take comfort in mom. So I went with my parents and um, one of our friends was visiting in town and we took them like, that's the whole reason why they were here was for the Guillermo del Toro exhibit. Mm -hmm. And um, Willie would slow down and make sure that mom was close to where we were walking and then he would lick the inside of her palm <laughs> as like a comfort for him because he was nervous Aww. um but yeah he was like panting so we went outside and but yeah it was really cool and I really like I just love you could spend days in that oh yeah museum. it easily like it's mm-hmm. just so great and um <laughs> Willie does really well there Generally, as a service dog, he um, tends to ignore everything. However, there are two large Buddha statues when you go up the stairs. Currently, I I don't know if they're still... I think they're just kind of there forever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They've been there for a long time. Um, He really does not like uh, one of those Buddhas. And he growls at him every time. And he even barked a little bit. And it, like out of all of the things to see, like we went to the Guillermo del Toro. Exhibit. Yeah, and some of that shit was like kind of scary, like really scary. Like and the giant statue of like Pan from Pan's Labyrinth, and yep. the yeah, there, and there was like the giant Frankenstein head, and the giant like angel thing from the Hellboy movie mm-hmm. at the yeah, very entrance. Yeah. Willie didn't bat an eye. He sees one statue of Buddha, and he's like fuck that guy and <laughs> obviously he is not going to be enlightened anytime soon no maybe he was one of his past <laughs> companions disciples and was like listen he's a joke but yeah I, I really like going to the MI and I love um art and bloom I don't think they had it this year if they did like I missed it because it's you I think they had a digital version of it this year. Like you could, yeah. They had like a digital, like a virtual tour you could pay for. I think, Um, yeah, that would make sense because they probably need funding right now. Yeah, because yeah, it would be going on right now. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. through May, they're usually through Mother's Day, right? Yeah, I subscribe to their newsletter, so yeah, that's how I know that. Nice, but yeah, I really like I like them and the Wiseman on campus the Wiseman Art Museum on campus is really nice um I tend to do free things just because um the sculpture garden at um the walker the walker thank you yeah they've changed a lot of the exhibits recently like they still obviously have the cherry and the spoon that's kind of I feel like there'd be riots in the streets if they got rid of that but um, I I think Minneapolis would just be a set of flame yeah, they would just burn it down if uh, <laughs> that got removed. The cherry and the spoon. Yeah, but I haven't I haven't been since they added like the blue rooster and stuff. So, oh, and the love we now have our own love statue. Mm-hmm. That was apparently a very big deal. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I like the bridge. They like always trick out the bridge to the Walker Park, mm-hmm. and that's um. Isn't that mini golf like Target sponsored mini golf too in the summer? I think so. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. No, that's at the Science Museum. No, it started at the Walker. Oh, because they have that at the Science Museum now, too. Their mini golf thing, um, it talks about erosion and stuff, though. So, like, each hole oh, cool. has has something to do with, um, like, soil and erosion and water and... It's pretty cool. Nice. I like I like the Science Museum too. Yeah. It's been several years since I've been there. Yeah. And done that, but it was cool. Nice. All right. In closing, mm-hmm. you can find us online at yeoldcrimepodcast.com and follow us on social media at ye old crime podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can also email us at yeoldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Lindsay. And Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. Bam. I did it again. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop.